right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Ephesians chapter 3, we continue through our series in the book of Ephesians, going verse by verse, and we have now reached uh, what it means to be praying in Christ. So each week we've looked at a different in Christ uh, as we've gone through, uh, I believe, the last eight weeks in Ephesians, and now we get to a prayer by the Apostle Paul for the church in Ephesus, and so it's praying in Christ. So as you're turning there, let me ask you, how is your prayer life? What's your prayer life like? When do you pray? How do you pray? And who taught you to pray? These are all things that uh, we see as we get into Scripture that prayer is, is all throughout the Bible. And so it is essential for the believer to be uh, in an in a attitude and mindset of prayer. As Tim Keller says, true prayer is not asking God for what you think you want, but asking God to change your desires to match His Oftentimes, we come to the Lord with a whole list of things that we want, and yet we should be praying for us to be matched up with His will as our hearts are laid out before Him. As Oswald Chambers puts it, prayer is not asking God to do things for us, but asking Him to do things through us. How often we ask for God to do things when we are not even willing to be obedient to fulfill those things that we're asking for. So, throughout Scripture, you have prayers. David prayed a famous prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, 1 through 12. Just listen to the words that he expresses for his sorrow for being found in sin with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in your inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You read prayers like this and you just see the, the heart that is behind David, that he is broken that he is remorseful, that he, he knows that he's offended God greatly and he just bows before him in prayer. How essential prayer is for the life of a believer. For, for anyone who is in the flesh, they are in desperate need of God and his power and, and how we tap into that communion is through prayer. If Jesus, who put on flesh, saw the necessity of prayer, how much more should we see the necessity of prayer? Jesus prayed. Luke 5.16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus taught us how to pray. In Matthew 6, 9-13, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He taught us to pray. He prayed in his incarnation. The fact that he had on flesh, that he was fully God and fully man, living, living out his life, he saw the necessity for prayer 
in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had been baptized and was, you see it, praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You see here the trinity in action and you see that Jesus was in the moment in his incarnation as he's identifying with us in full flesh that he is also praying. Jesus goes to be baptized and he does it out of obedience. It's not that he needed to be baptized in repentance because there was nothing for him to repent of. He was sinless. Yet he identifies and in his identity as a human and in the flesh he goes and he is obedient in baptism. And so he lives the life that we can't live, sinless, and he obeys God in a fullness that we cannot do. And so that should say to us, even in baptism, there is an obedience in baptism that was followed by Christ. And so if you're a believer, and this is just something to set on, if you're a believer in Christ and you've not been baptized, then you're not being fully obedient. To, to sit in week after week and say, oh, I, I don't need to do that, but Jesus needed to do that? That's being disobedient. Jesus prayed, and he prayed in his transfiguration in Luke 9, 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Jesus prayed. He prayed for our benefit in raising Lazarus from the grave in John 11, 41 through 42. And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you would always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. He prays even there aloud for the benefit of those around him. Jesus prayed for eternal life, for salvation, for unity of the church. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, 1 through 5, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed for strength. He prayed for God's will. He taught his disciples to pray for strength, that they would not fall into temptation. As he enters the Garden of Gethsemane, he says this in Luke 22, 40 through 46, And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. How important is prayer? For the life of a believer, for the life of Christ to be so riddled with prayer, it shows that we should be a people who are dependent upon God to do something in our lives that we commune with him in prayer. Jesus even prayed in his final words on the cross for unrepentant sinners. 
He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, as they cast lots, dividing his garments. Jesus prayed. We see the importance of prayer. David prayed. We see the importance of a prayer of repentance. And now we get to a section of Scripture where Paul is going to pray. And Paul's going to pray, and he's going to pray a prayer that is for the church, that they would be strengthened. But he prays, and he prays in such a way that you see the Trinity in this prayer. He prays, I bow my knee before the Father. He says that to be strengthened with power through his Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. You see all three persons of the Trinity being recognized in this prayer, that Paul begins to pray that there would be, that God would begin to do something in their hearts and in their lives that, they can't do on their own. So let's read Ephesians 3, starting verse 14 through the end of the chapter, this prayer of Paul. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he, might, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us. We thank you that it can indwell us. We thank you that it is uh, a word that is planted within us, that we would be a people of your own possession, that we would be children of the Father, that we would be people who your spirit indwells, and that your strength would be made known in our weakness. Father, I pray that as we get into your word today, that you draw us to want to commune with you, that you draw us to want to give you more and more areas of our life and more and more areas of our heart as you change us from the inside out. We ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us by the power of your spirit. We ask that you would indwell us with the presence of your very own son so that we could have you live in and through us for your glory. In Christ's name. Amen. Praying in Christ. Paul, number one, praying in Christ to experience his presence. He says, for this reason. Well, what is this reason? He's beginning where he started off in, in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason. Then he went on this tangent. And now he's back to this. For this reason. Well, what is this reason? The reason is that you are now made spiritually alive. You were once dead and now you are alive. For this reason, you are now his workmanship. You are his masterpiece. He is he is a, making you a work of art. For this reason, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but now you're fellow citizens and saints with God and his household. For this reason, because you are now being built up together into the dwelling place of God through the Spirit, this is the reason he's bowing his knee before the Father. All of these things have been done on your behalf, and so this is Paul's response of worship. He responds in worship by praying. Charles Spurgeon says, true prayer is neither a mere mental exercise nor a vocal performance. It is far deeper than that. It is spiritual transaction with the creator of heaven and earth. I ask you about your prayer life. How is your prayer life? Think about that, that when you engage in worship through prayer, you're engaging in a 
communion with the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit that you are now engaging in, not just some simple transaction, it's a spiritual transaction where you get to commune. So he says, I bow my knees. I bow my knees. What does this signify? Well, it signifies submission. As he falls before the Lord, he, he falls before him in submission. Psalms 95, 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He's not telling us that we need to always bow our knees, but he's saying that it, it represents a submission, but it also represents an emotion. Paul could have said, I pray, but instead he says, I bow my knee. He's not mandating this posture, but he's showing that his posture in prayer is an attitude of submitting. So kneeling means that you're showing reverence, you're showing submission, you're showing humility, you're showing an adoration before God. And the word before means toward or face-to-face with. So what he's saying is, I bow down face-to-face before the Father like a child comes to his earthly dad. This is an intimate exchange that Paul is expressing here. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This is more difficult to uh, translate, but it means the whole family of believers. That the church gets its name from God the Father, that whether the church is on earth or the church is all-conquering in heaven, whether they're separated by death or not separated by death, that we are one body of believers. We are his family, and we all derive our name from him. And whether we are here on earth or we are gone ahead into heaven, we are still the family of God. That should give us hope that our loved ones who are in Christ, they're still in the family. They're just in heaven, all conquering. Romans 8:17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So Paul here is referring to all the saints, whether in heaven or on earth of all times, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in you, dwell in your hearts through faith. This is where he begins to get into the petition where Paul prays for the Ephesian believers to be filled with a spiritual strength. A spiritual strength. That's a prayer that the Holy Spirit that now dwells in the believer would begin to produce in them a power and a presence that strengthens their daily life with progressive sanctification. This is how we could pray too. That I would begin to grow in Christ. That the church, Metaview Baptist, would begin to be strengthened from the inner being of Christ, the Spirit, dwelling in you, that you would begin to change from the inside out. That it would not be the same as yesterday because today's a new day and His mercies are new every morning. And that you would begin to grow and be strengthened in Christ, moment after moment, day after day. That Christ may dwell in you. It's Colossians 3, 12-17 reads, as Paul wrote this as well, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all, el- above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which, indeed, 
you were called in one body. And be thankful. Verse 16, look at this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Dwell in your hearts richly. Grant Richardson says the word dwell means to keep house. We should live in the word of God like we live in our homes. We are familiar with our homes, where all the closets are, where all the items are stored. We must thoroughly acquaint ourselves with the word. The word should become so familiar to us that we know it like the back of our hand. The idea is to let the word of God dwell inside and live at home in your lives. Well, if you want to be strengthened with the spirit, if you want him to dwell within you, then the word of God should dwell in you richly. It should be at home. Now, I I grew up in the same house from age 4 to age 18 when I went off to college. It was the same house. Not everyone gets that privilege of growing up in the same house all of those years, but I knew this house like the back of my hand. When I would sneak out at night and sneak back in, I knew where to step so there were no creaks or cracks in the floor. Like, I knew this house. I knew exactly where to step. And this was the house that was my mom's house. And, And sure enough, I was... I was at home there. When I moved out, it, it felt weird. I, I would go into my apartment, and it just never felt like home. Anybody ever have that feeling? Like, it's just not home. Well, this was home to me. That I, was at, I was comfortable there. I knew it. To let God's word dwell in you richly means you know it. It's comfortable there. It, it's, it's, you're, you're becoming more and more familiar with it every day. Charles Spurgeon says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. That is, let let it be your most familiar friend. We know the people who live in our home, but we do not really know other people. When someone asked Mr. Whitfield, what do you think of Mr. So-and-so's character? He answered, I cannot say. I've never lived with him. Oh, that is true, test. It is living with people that lets you know what they are. In like manner, If you will live with the word of Christ, especially if you will let it dwell in you and abide with you as a constant friend, you will get to know it better and better. And the better you know it, the more you'll love it. Now, at this point, I could tell you a story about when I moved in with my my wife and we really began to know each other, right? Like you, when you move in after marriage, you really get to know someone. But I'll refrain from that. I'll talk about when I went to college. So when I moved into the college dorm at UTC, I drove down there. My sad mother was driving behind me to leave me at college, and I moved in with the valedictorian from Ray County. I moved in with a concert violinist from Florida, and I moved in with a wrestler from Alabama. We had never met each other until that moment, and they were like, what are you? And I was like, I'm normal. Like, I I bring nothing to the table, right? I'm just the normal guy. We didn't know each other, but I tell you what. It didn't take long living with one another to begin to learn, oh, that makes that person really mad. Oh, you can't eat their food even if they wrote their name on it. Like, you better not eat their food because they'll get super mad if you do that. Oh, this person always leaves their shoes out. This person always leaves the dirty dishes. And, you know, you really begin to know people as time goes on. Let me ask you, how well do you know the Word of God? Does it live with you? 
Is it a constant companion? Is it a faithful friend? Is it a roommate? Or is God's word simply a visitor? Maybe visits once or twice a week, maybe once or twice a month. Does it richly dwell within you? This means that we, as we look at Paul's prayer, we should pray for spiritual growth. We should pray for spiritual strength, and that means that we should be letting God's word dwell in us richly. To know the truths of Scripture is to be familiar with them, enough to let them permeate every area of our life. Why would we ask for God the Father to strengthen us with power through His Spirit in our inner being if we're not also seeking Him through the consumption of His Word? Why do we ask for strength if we're not spending time letting His Word dwell in us richly? Oftentimes, we simply want to pray for a quick fix, a fast solution, for God to just do it. I just need you to do a special work in this without ever having let his word dwell in us richly. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Strengthened with power. A power that is not in your own ability. As a, as a young man, late in my teens, I was, I was gung-ho for Christ for a good year or so. I, I was excited to be in his word. I began to read the Bible each and every night. I was, I was, I was just really enamored by it. And then as time went on, it became, to, it became more and more periodic. You could say, for lack of a better term, I, I was spiritually weak. I was not walking in humility and meekness and patience. I was basically walking in selfishness and worldly desires and yet claiming to be a Christian. I was surrounded by the church. I was surrounded by believers. I was even a youth ministry major studying Christian education, learning God's word but I was not allowing God's word to dwell in me richly. So I allowed sin to creep into my life, and it was devastating. I'll never forget the sickness, the physical sickness of becoming aware of how sinful you are. I was broken. I was, I was weak. And I wrote scripture down so we would begin to dwell in me richly. And I remember writing this down and putting it on my mirror because I was so vain that I would see it every day. And it was Isaiah 40, 29 through 31. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall, be, shall fall exhausted but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with, wing, with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. There's a point where you want God's strength and his power in you so richly that you long for his word to dwell in you richly because you no longer have the power to do it. I no longer have the power. I am weak. I am exhausted. I am worn out. And if I'm left up to my own spiritual power, I will fail every single time. Hudson Taylor, who was the, 
uh, British Baptist Christian missionary to China who founded the China Inland Mission said, when God decided to open inland China to the gospel, he looked around to find a man weak enough for the task. He also said, all God's giants have been weak men. God uses people who are weak. God uses people who are spiritually weak, longing for his power to be within them. And how do you ask for that? Through prayer. Paul prayed that God would remove the thorn of flesh, but he didn't. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Where are you weak? Spiritually, where, where are you weak right now? Do you need his power? David Guzik says we really don't believe God's grace is sufficient until we believe we are insufficient. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In your hearts, that you would have a strength and a power through the spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ would take up residency in you. That he would come into your heart and he would change you. Spiritual strength and progressive sanctification are an inner change before they are ever an outer change. That Jesus Christ would move into my heart and begin to change things, remodel things. Because the battle against temptation and sin is a battle that is won or lost in the heart. Jesus say this in Mark 7, 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. We might be able to change our outward behavior through various programs, white-knuckled obedience, methods we've learned from other people. But if God doesn't change our hearts, it's only a matter of time. If God doesn't dwell in us richly, our life will only produce religious behavior, not the righteousness of Christ. James says this in James 1, 19 through 27, that he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls did you hear that receive the implanted word let it dwell in you richly but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans, 
and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Genuine Christianity is not a moral improvement program. It's asking Jesus to take up residency in your heart, to change you. This is Paul's prayer, that Christ would dwell in you, that he would take up residency in your heart, that he would change you from the inside out. There's a short story that was written by Robert Munger, and it's called My Heart, Christ Home. He tells this story, and he says, One evening, I invited Jesus into my heart. Maybe, maybe you're familiar. Maybe you prayed a prayer inviting Jesus into your heart. Maybe that was the terminology that you used. But honestly, salvation is simply recognize that you are a sinner and that you need Jesus to be not only your Savior, but the Lord of your life. And so you bow your knee and you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and ask him to change you from the inside out. He says, what an entrance he made. It wasn't spectacular or emotional thing. It was just a very real thing. He came into the darkness of my heart and he flipped on the light. He started a fire and it began to warm up the cold chill that was in my heart. So my cold, dark heart was now illuminated and warm. Oh, what a joy that relationship was. At first, I said, I want this heart of mine to be totally yours. I want you to have, have every part of it. I want you to settle down. I want you to be perfectly at home in my heart. Everything I have belongs to you, Lord Jesus. Does this sound familiar to you? So he took him to the library. He took him to the study, and he said, this room is, you know, it's got books in it, it's got magazines in it, this is, this is where I do all my learning, this is what I, this is what I read, this is what I, I look at. And so they went into the study, and he entered the room, and looking around, he saw all the books on the shelves, saw all the magazines on the table, and the pictures on the wall, and then I became red-faced, he said. Master, I, I know, I know that this room needs to be cleaned up. There's some things in here that don't need to be here. Can, can you help me? Certainly. First of all, all these things that you're reading, all these things that you're looking at that are not helpful, they're not pure, they're not holy, they're not good, they're not true, you, you need to throw those out. And as far as the pictures on the wall go, you're going to have a real hard time getting those out of your mind. But why don't you put a picture of me up? Why don't you hang a picture of me right in the middle so that you're constantly aware of me in your life? All right. Next, they went to the dining room. And so they went to the dining room. They sat down, and he said, this is the room where I, I fill up on all my appetites and all my desires. This is, this is where I feed. And so Jesus sat at the table, and he says, all right, well, what's for dinner? And he said, you're going to love it. It's my favorite dishes. It's got money. It's got academics. It's got degrees. It's got fame. It's got fortune. It's got hobbies. It's got all of these things that I love. So he set it before him, and he didn't say anything, but he observed that Jesus didn't eat of any of it. So he said, well, what's the problem? Jesus replied, well, my food is to do the will of my father. Oh, well, what should I be eating? You should stop seeking your own pleasures, seeking your own desires and your own satisfactions, and you should start seeking the will of God. That should be what you're consuming. So they left there and they went to the living room. The living room was great. It was it was a, had overstuffed chairs, it had a fireplace, it had a quiet atmosphere, and so they decided, you know what, why don't we meet here every morning in this comfortable room, and we'll spend some time together. He said, you know, those mornings, they started off great, 
we spent some wonderful hours there. But then as pressures mounted and time began to be shortened, I got so busy, I just started skipping it all together. One morning as I was rushing out the door, I saw that the door to the living room was open. It was ajar, and I peeked in, and I saw that the fireplace was going. The Lord was sitting there all alone. I said, Master, have you been here all these mornings? Yes. I told you that I'd be here every morning to meet with you. The Lord went on to explain that the problem was that I had viewed my quiet time only as a means for my own spiritual progress rather than a time to meet and fellowship with a living God. Oh. I'd been just using that time for my own, my own pleasures rather than a time to commune with God. So Jesus took him and they went out to the workshop and he said, listen, if, if you allow me to have control of this area of your life, I can produce in you things you never imagined that could be produced. That sounds great. So then he took him up to the media room and he said, man, I really wish he hadn't asked to go into the media room. There's things that I watch, there's things that I do, there's people that I hang out with. And, and one evening as I was making my way out the door, Jesus said, well, where are you going? Oh, I, I'm going out with some friends. Well, can I, can I go along with you? Well, I, I really don't think you'd like going where I'm going. And so he says, um, okay, well, I'm sorry. I thought that when I moved in that we were going to do everything together. Well, we'll hang out tomorrow. He came back and he realized that there's just no joy in this world. There's no joy without Christ being with me. And so he surrendered his entertainment area, and so he was like, all right, I've, I've surrendered everything there is. And then one day, Jesus said, I, I don't know, there's, there's an awful smell in here. What do, you, what do you mean there's an awful smell? There's a, it smells like something has died in, in your house, and I just, I can't take the smell anymore. And he said, it's coming from that closet. Oh, I knew the closet, he said. I had locked it away, and I'd kept the key. That was my area. And he said, well, I'm, I'm actually offended that you would want in my closet because I've given you every other area of my life, and, and that's not enough for you. This is my area. And Jesus said, I, if that's how you feel, then I, I'll just, I'll be outside on the doorstep waiting. And he says, you know, there's no grieving like there is when you realize that there are things in your life that are so foul that you feel his presence retreating from you. He said, I, I'll give it to you, but I don't have the power to, to clean it. I don't have the strength. And Jesus says, I know. I'll take care of it. So he hands him the key and he says, you know what? It's more than you just having all these rooms. Here's the title. This is your house. It's no longer mine anymore. This is the idea of what it means to have him dwell in you richly, that you live in such close communion that even in a prayer where you bow your knees before the Father, you're asking him to strengthen you with his spirit for his, for his son, Christ, to dwell in you. That means I want you to have every single bit of it, not, not that I would even hold anything back. So here's my question. Does the word of God dwell in you richly? Because having information doesn't necessarily mean you have transformation. And let me ask you this. Have you invited Christ into your heart? And if so, does he have complete control? Or are there rooms that you have held back from him? 
Are there things that you've locked away that you say, you know what, that's, that's my area? And if so, let me ask you, is he really Lord of your life?